Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Test, test, test. Everything seems to be working. Just waiting on Keith Lee. It's good. It's good for me to wait on him instead of him waiting on me. Oh, I better not do that. Juliet will end up putting it in the podcast. (laughs) I hope you're having a wonderful time at college, sweetheart. Oh my gosh, when you come in, this thing ding-dongs like a front doorbell, but it's super, super loud. It always has done that. Oh my gosh, I normally guess... It literally always does that. I'm not used to that happening. Oh my gosh. What do you mean you're not used to it? It's literally always done it. Well, I guess normally I either don't have my headphones on, or I'm the last person here, so I don't notice it. Oh, that's exactly what it is. I'm usually last. You are usually last. Well, that's all right. At the beginning of this, when you're not here, it's already on my recording where I'm like, do to do waiting on Chris, probably better since he usually is waiting on me. <laughs> what episode is this? Uh, I don't know. 112, 38, 36, 35, somewhere in there. Is it that what? Yeah. We're already 40. Right. We're, we're, we're already 40. Fast. No, I'm not 40. I have years before I'm years? 40. Really, years. Though? Really? Years. Really? Years. Really though, uh, about about two and a half <laughs> years. <laughs> I'll be thirty eight in August, so I'm not even, I'm not even thirty eight yet. So I actually I, I was gonna play this up like I did it on purpose or like I did it on accident, but I'm really doing this on purpose just for you and the getting getting things done stuff. I I got an alert right before I got on here that says I need to replace my air filter for my uh, house. So um, that takes less than two minutes. So according to getting things done, I have to do it right now. I'll be right back. He walked away, so he's not going to hear this part. But I think you took the wrong things away from that book, Amos. Never mind. The heater's blowing right now, which wow. makes it really hard to pour the air filter out. Is that how it's supposed to work? You interrupt meetings. If, if anything is going to take less than two minutes, you just... Yeah, that's exactly how it works. Do whatever. Okay, perfect. Do you remember, like, I don't know, five months ago when you got stood up on, an, on for a meeting by someone? And we talked a lot about valuing people's time. Hmm. That's interesting. I just wanted to well, bring that up. Well, what I meant by valuing people's time is people should value my time. <laughs> That's how it works. I mean, my time's far more important than your time. <laughs> That's probably true, actually. I'm a terrible human. No, it's not. Hey, so I have to give you some feedback. I wish I could remember his exact words, but uh, one of the guys from your class that you gave at Lone Star with Ben Marks, Torin, uh, I guess now friend of the show, Torin Billups. I'm going to throw his name out there because he told me he didn't care. I don't think he knew he, I was going to record it on the podcast, but he said it was a great class. And he felt like it helped him level up and he got to meet so many interesting people at that conference too. So your class was great. He could tell, he said that like you guys, he he knows how much work that is to do to put a class together and that he felt good just being able to get knowledge from you guys for the price that he got, knowing that you put way more hours in than what he paid for. Wow. I really thought, I thought you were about to slag me. I think the the, the millenniums refer to it as dragging someone. <laughs> I thought you were about to, to, to <laughs> I thought you were about to totally flame me. <laughs> no, no, no. So you, you and Ben had major impacts on people. So congratulations. That's, cool. um, that's so and nice to hear. you're going to give the class again, right? I'm giving the class again next week in Prague. So by the time this episode goes out, it'll be over or actually just happening. Like it might. I'm really sad that I'm not joining you. Yeah, Prague's going to be fun. And then, but we are, uh, as of now, we're, we're also scheduled to give it again at ElixirConf US in Denver or oh, good deal. whatever the suburb outside of Denver is that the conference is being held. 
Yeah. Aurora? Aurora. It's Aurora. Aurora. That's where my brother lives. Uh, So, yes. So, we're going to be there. And uh, I think we're doing it on two different days. So, if you are interested in that, there'll be availability, I'm sure. So, Gig City this year is doing some training. Are you guys doing it there, too? or? Oh, I've not talked to Bruce about that. I know Bruce and, and Maggie and the team down there, they're gonna they're doing a live view class, right? Mm-hmm. And the conference. Mm-hmm. So that'd be cool. We'll all be there. Yeah, that's gonna be fun. I'm really excited about that again. I know some some folk, some uh, friends of mine have already bought tickets and they're like, Yep, we're coming down, it's gonna be great. So I'm really excited about that as well. Sweet. My friends are all like, Oh, cool, have fun. <laughs> it's a bit of a longer trek to get from the Midwest to Chattanooga. Nothing in Chattanooga except for a sponge display, so why would I go? You would go for the sponge display. That's like, that's awesome, and there's a bridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Chris Keithley, so. That's true, I'll be here. I'm 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 really excited about that happening. So you're, you're speaking there. Do you have any deep tease ideas about what you're talking about? The deep tease. Uh, the deep no, tease. I do, I, I, I'm, I'm workshopping it with Bruce. I'm going to go ahead and do my name droppy thing that I do sometimes. So like at Lone Star, I was having a conversation with Chris McCord. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Just about a thing that I was doing at one point in my life and Bruce overheard and was like, this is your talk. You're going to actually just give this as a talk. So we'll see. Nice. So that's nice. all I can say right now. Man, I need a I need somebody to workshop my talk with me, I think. I've never like workshopped a talk before, but... I think that could be good. What does your talk process look like, Amos? So it depends. If it's a technical talk, a lot of times it starts out with, I'm just going to write some code. And I'm going to write it over and over and probably do it slightly differently each time just until I can do it without thinking. Uh, almost, I prepare it like I'm going to just code it live, really. Mm-hmm. And then I start pulling the, the things that were tough for me a lot of times. Even after I've done it multiple times, I start pulling that stuff out to slides and saying hey the, you know this was the hard part this is the the part i was thinking about and then i give the talk basically with these like probably three or four slides that just have a little bit of stuff on them and as i'm giving it like into an empty room i have a piece of paper and i write down oh this was something i said this was something i said that i think is important and after i've given that talk two or three times i match up what are the things that were the same that i said every time because those are probably really important and i make slides for that and i add it in i move stuff around and then i like to sit on it and not actually do anything for you know a week or two and then i go back and kind of do something similar over again i like to sit on it for a week or two just so that i'm i'm not just ending up with a memorized list of things and when I come back to it in a week or two, it really helps me get some new ideas out. And then sometimes I will actually give the talk to like a video on my, like sitting at my desk and then I watch it. I don't always do that. I don't find it extremely beneficial, but uh, it, it helps a bit. I really just use that to take notes a lot of times on, I should add this slide. I should add this, not so much on my delivery and presentation, because when I'm sitting behind the microphone staring at the screen, I think that the presentation is very different than when I'm in a crowd of people. And actually, I prefer like user groups because I like more of a conversation style. I, I feel like I'm way better at that than standing up at a conference. But I'm twice as nervous. I can stand up at a conference in front of 200 people and not think about it. And, and I don't get that nervous when I... Well, I, I do. Like the day before, I'm like, I'm, my talk's going to be crap. And I, I just destroy myself. But by the time I get on stage, I'm not really nervous at all. When I'm at a meetup group and I'm giving a talk, I think because it's so intimate, I'm super nervous the whole time, all the way through. 
That's interesting. That is that's a really interesting human psyche thing. Like it's almost like being able to see all the people who are out there, you know, potentially judging you is actually worse. Whereas if you have like let's say 200 people in the audience, no one's going to know. Like you, you it, like no, you can't you can't make out faces of people and, uh, to some degree. It's like there's too many people and you can at least find a couple people who are like in your camp. So that's sort right. of somehow less bad. <laughs> right. I look to the opposite side from Chris. Because I already know that he's going to judge me. Fairly. Fairly. Yeah. Very, okay. very earnestly and fairly. Yeah. And, and I expect that. So, uh, but I also, I also expect your, your face to be more kind. Right. <laughs> so I find somebody that I, I usually try to find somebody that I met at the conference that I didn't know before. Mm-hmm. And then I watch them. I told you my hack, right? I told you my hack for this. I, I'm not sure. So what you do, here's the life hack. Trademark. You go, uh, copyright, copyright 2009. You go, what you do is you go up to someone before you give the talk. Like after you've set up and you made sure like your stuff's all good and you get your, always grab a bottle of water or a cup of water or something like that. Some sort of water. Be ready for it with that. Do that, you know, but then you go up and find somebody in the audience and then you go to them and you're like, hi, I'm, well, in my case, be like, hi, I'm Chris. And you just introduce yourself immediately. And now you like, you have a friend. And they're in the front row because you don't walk like to the back of the room to do this. You just walk to like whoever is at the front of the room and you're like, hi, I'm Chris. It's nice to meet you. Who are you? Like, where'd you come from? Like, you know, how'd you get to the conference? Like how long have you been doing Elixir or whatever? You just like make small talk. And now you have that person. You have like that person who's on your side because you sort of engage with them on a human level. Nice. And it forces you to instantly sort of be outgoing. So you get over all the initial nervousness of starting the talk. Before you even start the talk. I think I think you have told me this before, maybe even in a recording, but uh, that is, I'm, I'm glad you, you said it again. Now people who listen to this thing are going to see me do this when I give talks, and they're going to be like, oh, that's what he's doing. <laughs> he's not being nice to me at all. Yeah. <laughs> he's just using me. Do you use that for feedback too? Will you go back to that person after you get done talking and and say, hey, what'd you think? I have not done that, actually. That's a really good idea. Often, like, I'll end up talking to that person again anyway, because now we have, like, a rapport, and, you know, I'll be like, yeah, oh, thanks for coming. Like, I really appreciate it. And actually, I've done that before. This happened at uh, Codemash. I was just, I was at Codemash at the beginning of the year, and some, some people were sitting in the front row, and I went up and was like, hi, how's it going? I'm Chris, or whatever. And they're, it was a talk about Kafka. And so they've been using Kafka a lot, and they were coming to hear some of the stuff I had to share about it. And then... Uh, Codemash is this giant conference. It's like many thousand people, and I don't really typically know anybody there. Uh, it's sort of like outside my 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 wheelhouse to some degree. Mm-hmm. But so afterwards, I was like eating dinner, and I was more or less by myself. And I typically either just go sit with randos that I've never met before or whatever. But it, it kind of was it was like late, so I was sitting there by myself. And both of those guys came up and was like, "Hey, you know, really appreciated your talk, and had so many other questions we want to talk to you." And then like I ended up spending a lot of the rest of that conference chatting with them and hanging out with them and engaging nice. with them. About it. So it was like that was nice. Like you you do kind of make friends and connections out of doing this. Well, and I'm pretty sure that. If you're shaking their hand right before your talk, they probably are more engaged than sitting there with their laptop open at that point because they're like, crap, he's going to be looking at me. <laughs> so just so you know, if if Chris shakes your hand right before a talk and you are more engaged in your laptop than him, he might call you out in the middle of his talk. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, if you don't want to be here, there's a door back there. Like You could speak with your feet. That's okay. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. You could just leave. Actually, <laughs> I would actually just rather you get out of here. This is the same reason I don't do Q&A at the end of any of my talks. So as a rule, I just never do Q&A because I kind of feel like if you sat through the talk and you have things you want to talk about, you will come up and talk to me. And if you sat through the talk and you're ready to go, well, then go. Like, I don't need to hold hold you there waiting till some you know arbitrary point in time and have you have you listen to all the questions and the other thing is like i don't know i don't find there to be a lot of like benefit in the specific questions that come out during q a sessions like the meaningful conversations all happen in the hallway or all happen after the fact and right. i've never not given a talk where i've said hey if you have more questions about this please come up and talk to me afterwards and not had people come up and talk to me about it afterwards at least like a handful so i don't know like and the thing is, if you do Q&A, you're going to run the risk of getting like this, this handful of characters and, and you get like the, 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 you get this like just, just, you know, litany of nonsense that comes out of like Q&A sessions where like you get the question that's not really a question, but more of a statement about your talk. Mm-hmm. You get like the essentially the well actually question and then you or get joke. the question or a joke. Yeah. Or a joke that doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, <laughs> And like falls flat and then everybody's like, why did you do that? <laughs> and then just hangs their head. Like if you ever felt embarrassed on someone else's behalf, you, that that's how you end up feeling with those with that sort of thing. Or you get the, the, the person who raises their hand to ask a question, but is actually responding to someone else's question from earlier. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. They, there's to me, there's too many hang ups on the questions. So I would I would much rather not take everyone's time. Right. Even though even though if you get a good question, it is good for everybody to hear and everybody's probably interested in the answer. I've noticed that most questions coming out are not those deep answer questions. Even the semi good questions are like I missed this one little thing. There's two things I don't like about it as well, which is I don't like the framing of the conversation. Like I don't like the position of the conversation where often I'll be on the stage still and then there's a bunch of people. And so then it becomes almost like a defense. You know, it's like you're in the sort of you're not on like you're literally not on an even playing field. Like you're not having a conversation. And I find that to be not useful to sort of engender like good conversations. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is like, I don't know, I think it's incumbent upon speakers to figure out what the amount of content they need to provide in a talk. Because the thing is, is like a good talk is basically no more than 40 minutes. There's no talk, no, no good talk goes on for more than 40 minutes. Like that's about the amount of content you want to have maximum. Right. I posit the actual amount that people pay attention to is less than that. And so figuring out how much content to like present to people, how much like information to present to people or how much of a sales pitch you're going to make to people in that amount of time is really tricky. And so one of the things you do want to leave people with is you want to leave people with a certain amount of questions. But those questions should be like, how do I go deeper into this thing? And not like I missed I did not understand the fundamental thing that you tried to present. And I, and like, in the latter case, you're not going to have a meaningful conversation on stage talking to someone else. And if you've done your job well, you should never have the first case. Like if you've done your job well, you will hopefully not have the first case. Unless somebody like came in late or got distracted or just didn't have some base knowledge that you thought everybody. Right. Well, that's like misreading the room. And I mean, honestly, at that point, that's like, 
that's why I sort of say it's like it's incumbent upon the speakers to like understand that. It's like that is part of getting good as a conference speaker or a speaker of, of any kind, whether it's in like a board meeting or whether it's on, in a meetup or it's at a conference or whatever. Presenting information in sort of a cogent way that people understand like where you where you build on top of concepts and people can walk away with more information than they had before or they're ready to start making decisions or they're ready to start researching the thing on their own that's like the best you can do and it's incumbent upon you as a speaker to learn how to do that that's what's that's like what your job is that's like that and be entertaining like that and be funny <laughs> it's like those are the goals and so I don't know, I don't, it's a very interesting, speaking is a very interesting thing to me. There was a recent like thing on Twitter, somebody who's done a lot more of this than me basically said it's a, it's a waste of time. Like if you want to, if you want to grow like a brand, speaking at conferences is like a loss because it's, it doesn't reach enough people and doesn't really build your brand. And, and like, I don't really want to get into that, but it did make me start thinking about this. And I've had these conversations with people before about like how much time it takes to do a talk. And I think the first time I told somebody it takes me 60 hours to write a talk, they were floored by it. I mean, I've had conversations with other speakers at speakers dinners where I, where I was like, yeah, I think my slides took me 20 to 30 hours of work. And they were like, I slapped these together on the plane ride over here. I get, I get where you're coming from. I'm, I mean, if I'm going to stand up in front of, I don't know, even a meetup group, let's say you're standing up in front of 20 people, right? And you're going to talk to them for nearly an hour. You're, you just took up 20 hours worth of people's time. And, and I, I think it's a small price to pay that you put in near that amount of time, at least, if not more. It's, and you definitely don't want to give a talk that they're like, oh, I can't believe I just wasted an hour of my life. Like, I mean, but, it's, but, uh, but also that's hard like, because speakers who are brand new don't have this expertise. And like the only, the, it's like playing poker. The only way to actually get good at the thing is to do it and to do it for stakes. You can't actually get good at playing poker unless you're playing for money. This is like a well-known like amongst poker players, it's like a well-known thing. Like the only way to get good is to play for money and to play for money that me that matters. Otherwise, you're not really learning how to get better at the game. And this goes back to your rehearsing. Rehearsing the talk in front of yourself is so much different than doing it on stage and everything changes. And it takes like, at least for me, just my own anecdotal experience, it took so many conference talks for the world to slow down if that makes any sense. It took so many talks for me to be able to be on stage and essentially not just be fueled by adrenaline, where I could sit there and make coherent decisions and understand what was happening and then like use my intuition to like make connections. Like I had a, I had an experience one time where I was giving a talk and it was about, it was, it was a silly talk, but it, um, it was at like kind of a big enterprise conference and it was about basically using Git and how we, and, and like certain types of Git workflows and sort of, Stuff that if you've been doing Git for a while, you 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 know about, but was probably a little foreign to like some enterprise devs. And literally in the middle of the talk, a dude stood up, and there's a fair amount of people in this in this room. There's like a couple hundred people in this room. Dude stood up from the front row and just shouted, "Well, this is all just wrong." What? He was so mad. <laughs> Basically, because I was like, "You should rebase." <laughs> and we're like here's how rebasing works or something like that or maybe i was showing off a ref log or so i don't know whatever like i was showing some git thing and he got so mad about it i i don't know like at that point in my speaking career i had enough experience that i was actually able to sort of like work my way through that and talk him down and like 
get back on pace and then be like, and basically what I said was like, <laughs> I just kind of, I was like, okay, well, what do you mean, sir? And like gave myself a little bit of time to think about it. And then <laughs> he went on this big rant. And then after he was done, I was like, well, here's the thing. If it's okay with you, I'm going to give the rest of the talk. And then afterwards, I would love to discuss this more with you. Uh, and that, and then, and it like let all the tension out of the room. Like once you kind of like dis, and, but like, but having sort of the, the experience to be able to figure out how to navigate like the heckler situation is actually pretty tough. Like you have to do this a bunch. And I think a lot of people sign up for talking, uh, having not done it, don't really have a game plan and don't really have sort of like the scaffolding to support their endeavors in doing it. And then their talk ends up not being like the thing that they wanted it to be, whatever that, whatever that is, whether it's popular, whether it lands right, whether it came across the way you wanted it to come across, whatever. Like it just doesn't end up like holding the weight that they wanted it to hold. And they end up being disappointed by it and feeling like it was a waste of time. When in actuality, it's like, well, you just picked up a guitar for the first time and tried to play like Stairway to Heaven and don't know how to do that. And it didn't work out for you, but that's because you've never played guitar before. Like you, you have to do this a bunch in order to get good at it. And you have to just sort of like persevere through it. And that really means like you have to have support to be able to do it. You have to... You have to have like a, this, like all the scaffolding in your life to be able to support like going to conferences and learning how to become a better speaker. You know, the only reason I ever managed to do it is because for the entire time I've wanted to be a speaker, I've had companies willing to pay me to go do that. Nice. And and like literally that's the only way it, would, it worked out for me because I just kept doing it, assuming that I could get better. And like I was able to practice essentially on someone else's dime and like a lot of conferences like don't don't like can't or don't like support your ability to go and so it doesn't cultivate new speakers and you know a lot of companies don't pay for that stuff and if you don't have that it's a large investment to make both in time and literal money to go to a conference and speak for potentially like a learning opportunity for a thing that may or may not like pan out and so yeah it's like i don't know i think that's really complicated uh it's been something i've been thinking about quite a bit well I think it can help if you speak at user groups and stuff like that, but most of them are are very different than speaking at a conference. Mm -hmm. So I think that you learn some skills that transfer over to standing on a stage and talking, but they're not, it's not a one for one. You can be really great at speaking at a meetup and then be terrible at a conference. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, well, and you, and the the fact that the honest, simple facts is like people are terrible at things they've never done before. Like, and if you've not had experience doing this, like, don't, you know, keep your expectations where they are. You know, I think that's what, like, like you, you should not, you should not get down on yourself in the same way that you shouldn't get down on yourself if you can't play stairway. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, it's like, well, you'll work up to that, you know, maybe next week, like come back and give it another try. Like how much do you want to practice on this? And like, but finding venues to practice is like way harder than learning how to play guitar. Or you, or you find out that you don't like to play guitar. That's okay too. <laughs> right. Well, but but giving it an honest throw is actually pretty hard, yeah. and and it really requires like all of this extra support infrastructure. And I think that's why a lot of conferences now do like mentorship programs and and like try to um, help cultivate new speakers because it is hard. There's a big barrier to entry. Is a huge barrier, a massive monetary barrier to entry on top of the actual just human barrier, barrier to entry, which is like most people are more afraid of public speaking than death. <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Like, that's a that's a real statistic. Like, so even getting past that is is hard. 
And you can be a fantastic speaker and write fantastic speeches. And then if you're going through CFP processes and you're not good at that, you, you can this can be something that you try and fail over and over. And a lot of times the feedback for uh, a CFP to, that didn't get selected mm-hmm. is, is, hey, thanks. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a generic email. Which is unfortunate, but I also understand, you know, if you're doing a conference and you get a thousand of these and you're picking 10, you, you it might be really hard to give everybody a, a constructive response. And you may, it may just be like, well, I just thought this talk was more interesting to me than yours. Like that might actually be the feedback. It's hard to give feedback on a, on a CFP whenever you don't know what was in the speaker's mind when they were writing it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know all that stuff's really, really tricky. And that's even if you find out that your talk was rejected at all. Like half the conferences just never even tell you. Yeah, that's that's depressing too. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I think it's a, I think this is a really interesting thing and I want to encourage well, here's what I'll also say. And I've said this before, but I'll go ahead and make this like a public thing. If you are a new speaker and you want help, I will personally help you. I can't do this for everyone, but like I'll figure out some way to 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 help with that. And I've offered this before in other capacities, but um, not always super publicly, but, uh, but yes. So here's the thing. If you're a new speaker and you want to speak in an Elixir conference, I hit me up, find a way to hit me up. I'm fra- fairly public and I will, I will help you. I'll find time to help you. If you take the time to find Chris, Chris will help you. Basically. Yes. That's the barrier to entry. <laughs> That's a pretty low barrier. Because like, because I think I, I cause I want to see more people speaking and I want to see new speakers and I want to see. Uh, more diverse speakers and I want to see all kinds of, I want to see speakers from other backgrounds and I want to see people from, from, I don't know. Like I, I think that like we have to focus on that in the Elixir world. So in the vein of getting better at speaking uh, for the next time that you talk, is there, is there one specific thing that you would like to improve in your own speaking or that you're working on? Oh, for me personally. Yeah. I, I have very little things things i have a lot of like little things that i'm working to improve on one of them and it's it'll be not surprising to anyone who's listened to this podcast before uh one of them is vocal fry i do a lot of different types of of just filler words and vocal fry and stuff like that i have a bad habit of ending a lot of my phrases with rhetoricals so i'll sort of say something but then posit it as a question but it's not a question that actually anybody can answer so i'm working on that and i'm working on uh, a lot of my timing around jokes and making those more intentional and making my talks like more entertaining. Uh, that's the main stuff I'm working on. I think you should use some of your voices. <laughs> that would be right? awesome. Just to give a whole talk in Southern Lawyer. Yeah. Well, I meant like, like bounce back and forth between a few. <laughs> that might be just, that might be in- incoherent at some point. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would be fun. But yeah, I don't know. I'm always thinking about that stuff. And I listen I, I listen back. I record all my talks on my laptop as I'm giving them. And so I always have a raw copy of it. And I always listen back over those and, and try to figure out ways that I could be doing better. And after the talk too, I'll typically, unless I really get swamped with people, I'll typically disappear and I'll go write down. I'll write, like take a bunch of notes from how I felt like it went. Like my initial like knee jerk reactions to how I feel like it went so I but I mean a lot of that is like you have to be really really intentional with this stuff and if you if, if no one's given you a scaffold to know how to do that when you're first getting started like it's hard to know how to practice right yeah there's a book I'm trying to think of what it's called it's like basically public speaking patterns that I think is really good I'll see if I can find it 
Uh, I own it, and then we'll put it in the show notes. But that is, if you don't have other people around who have been public speaking, uh, that that can be a really helpful thing. Uh, joining joining local speaking clubs; those are all over. Mm-hmm. The, that those are helpful. One thing that I'm working on is making better slides because I am horrible, and it's time to stop making that as an excuse for having crappy slides. I've actually a few times thought about hiring out somebody to do slides. But that seemed like it was going to be twice as much work as actually getting good at mm-hmm. making my own slides. Unless unless it's somebody that's worked with me through multiple talks. I know people who have done that. Sure. And they have one person that, they've done 10 talks for me. And now I don't even have to tell them. I just give them an outline and give my talk to a camera and they make the best slides ever. I'm not there to be able to work with somebody like that. So my goal is to to make better slides. And I've actually been every once in a while just going in and making slides on a topic like four or five slides up as like notes for myself for later just because it has me actively creating slides and i see them getting better or at least i get faster at them which makes me be able to spend more time making them useful i spend a lot of time on my slides i think i mean at some point it's mechanical it's just moving so so i when i whenever i prep a talk it typically ends up uh, as post-it notes for the majority of its life. I would say like for 80% of its life, it's just post-it notes. And I actually write out things like the tra- like transitions and I write out things like show this kind of code or show this example or whatever. And then I, I lay them all out on my desk or a wall and I, re- I give the talk a bunch of times and I keep rearranging them uh, and making them make sense and just keep doing that and doing that and doing that and doing that. But then once it's done, then I'm like, okay, cool. Now I can just put it into a keynote. And I always use Keynote. I'm, I'm over trying to make like all the different web thingies work. And Yeah, I, I used HTML. I used HTML stuff in JavaScript for quite a while. And then I've done my first set of Keynote slides now. It was when I was doing the backup speaking for Lone Star. That was mm-hmm. the first time I ever did Keynote slides. And my, my thought was, all right, I'm going to be a backup speaker. So I'm probably not going to have to use them anyway. So mm-hmm. let's just use this to learn how to use Keynote. And, and I think they actually turned out way better than the JavaScript and Markdown that was a pain in the butt. The nice thing about Markdown is it was easy to move stuff around, I think, easier than Keynote. But the quality that came out, I ended up spending so many hours on CSS that it didn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I just got really sick of messing around with all that. Keynote's not exactly like the best tool in the world, but that definitely has its like problems. But uh, it's the fastest I've been able to figure out how to and, and like for the quality, like for what you get at the end of it, it's the one that I like. Except for it does crash. Wasn't it Fred who had it crash in the no, middle of the talk? It, it was me. you. It's I've seen it crash exactly once. Oh man. Yeah, there is an upper a, bound to how many magic move transitions you can have in a keynote file. <laughs> I, I had no idea. I, that was uh, that was in Denver, right? I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it was in Denver. Yeah, at Elixir Days. So that was mm-hmm. that was funny. I just remember it crashing and being like, "Oh crud!" <laughs> yeah, just died immediately. Hope the file's not corrupt. Yeah, me too. I was like, "Oh, I've never seen that happen before." <laughs> <laughs> and then it like kind of didn't come back up for a second. I don't know. It was a whole thing. But it, luckily, it did. It, and that talk ended up being okay. So, so now that you've been through that, and you've been through that, the the guy standing up and like blowing up. We're gonna we're gonna distill this down, right? You you love rules about code, <laughs> so we're we'll call them tips instead. Okay, so it's not four lines of code. It's as a rule, it's a tip. <laughs> Do you have any like one or two tips for how to handle oh crap moments during a during a talk? Take a glass of water. That's the first one. Like, just take a sip of your water, 
because it's all going to be good. The other thing is to always remember that actually the audience is like super on your side. No one wants to, first of all, no one wants to be in a bad talk and everyone wants your talk to succeed. Like everyone is going into it, hoping that your talk succeeds. Everyone wants you to be a good speaker, um, both selfishly and empathetically. I think everyone there for the most part empathizes with the fact that what you're doing is like pretty hard mm -hmm. and wants you to be good at it. And so they're rooting for you. Like the majority of people, the vast majority of people are really rooting for you. Uh, and also things aren't going, things like if you pause for a second, people people don't notice that. Like it's not a big deal if you pause. You know what I mean? If you, if you pause for like 30 seconds, like literally 30 seconds, people might start to wonder what's up. But for the most part, if you pause for like a, a second or two, no one's going to care. No one's noticing that. It feels like an eternity to you, but it's okay. So right. just pause. And then stop yourself, like take a uh, drink of water so that you can like give yourself time to like think through the problem. And then you start like doing your debugging steps. You know what I mean? Like you, you approach it in the same way that you like approach debugging a problem. Like you start thinking through like the hypotheticals and you start working out how different situations might pan out. And you think about what you want to say and, you know, measure your words and all that kind of stuff. It's really easy to get nervous and then get into a situation where like if you do get like a heckler, right? Like your goal is to like diffuse the situation as fast as possible because no one's comfortable in that situation. Like no one in the room is comfortable. So you just want to diffuse that. If it's something like your slides start stop working or like the projector goes out, like I've had that. I've been giving a talk and like the projector just stopped and then like the AV dude comes up there and is like, I don't know. So like, what do you do, <laughs> right? Like... Well, Tur like, turn your laptop around. You start what you do in my case is you start pantomiming and you just like describe stuff and gesticulate wildly. You know, you're just like you get up there and do your wacky uh, way, uh, flailing arm, flailing inflatable tube man impression. And you just start moving your arms around and then you say things. And it's like that's as good as you're going to get. Actually, I, for me, I think that might be better for me. Like, <laughs> if the slides died, because I, I think I would end up turning it into more of a conversational that that would be my go-to. I would sit down on the end of the stage and just have a discussion with the front rows <laughs> or walk around and have a discussion with them. I don't know. It but I think it would take me a good, you know, 20 30 seconds to go, "Uh, now what?" <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you can like make small talk with people, you know, like to some degree you can kind of play it off. But I mean, just keep in mind that, you know, everyone in there wants you to succeed. And so if you just act confident, it kind of comes across as actual confidence and then you'll be okay. Even my worst talks that I've given, I like left the stage thinking, oh my gosh, everybody in this room currently hates me. <laughs> yeah. And they've, they've led to fantastic dis discussions, new friends, uh, new job opportunities, new learning opportunities. And, and people are like, your talk was great. And I'm like, really? That thing was horrible. Like, I, I'm embarrassed that I gave it, but you know, I don't, I don't follow up when they tell me that I'm like, Oh, thank you. Like <laughs> don't spill out that you think your talk was horrible and apologizing from stage is probably the most negative thing I've ever seen when somebody gave a talk. I was like, just stop. Just, just don't, don't apologize. Just keep going. <laughs> I mean, you might say, Hey, sorry, the projector went out, but move. Yeah. On. That's a little different. That's an extreme example. Right. But then you can move on from it. Like don't dwell on it. Uh, that has been, those are the things that I've seen completely kill a talk. Uh, more than nervousness, more than slides out of order. I mean, I had a talk that I completely forgot the demo and people were getting up and walking out of the room where I was like, oh yeah, I was supposed to show you all of this. And like three people 
stuck around to actually see the demo and i felt like i was like oh that sucks <laughs> i look like an idiot and the recording i think they had already shut off the recording too so it didn't make the demo didn't make it onto the online version of the talk and and i it, i've gone back and watched that talk a few times and i just shake my head every time i'm like oh, oh you could have done way better and my slide coloring was bad so you can't even read the slides on online it's just not good but getting better just constantly working and getting better Right. I think that's the key. That's that's the main thing. Figuring out a practice regime and figuring out how to get better is the is the main thing. Yeah. And and don't think that you're going to write a talk the day before. Yeah. Yeah, don't do that. It actually takes a long time. Yeah, it does. Uh so if you're going to give a conference talk, make sure you're going to commit some time. Make sure you have the time to commit up front. Don't throw out a CFP thinking that you're going to write a talk in a couple hours after work one day. Mm-hmm. And and it'd yeah. be great. Because I did that too. My first conference talk, it was like, not conference talk, my first meetup talk. I spent like 40 minutes on it. I thought, I, I know what I'm talking about. Right. It's no big deal. Uh, no. No, it was bad. <laughs> I turned it into a live code and, and made up for it a little bit. But that's only because whenever you're live coding, people feel for you. So it's okay for you to make mistakes. I have an Elixir topic. All right. If, you, if we want to pivot. Can we hard pivot? We. I think we can hard pivot. Are we ready for that? We're going to go full startup, hard pivot. We're going to hard pivot here. That's what they call it in the business. It's a hard pivot. It's when you take your entire business plan and you're like, this is hard. We're not going to do this. Time for the pivot. We were Pinterest for sports, and now we're an ad-serving company. I was a bagel delivery service, but for dogs. And now (laughs) we're an Instagram clone. Uh, Pivot is also what they refer to the people who work at Pivotal, if I remember correctly. I believe you're a pivot. Interesting. I, I guess because you help startups pivot. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, so I have an OTP related topic of discussion. This has come up recently, and it's been something I've been thinking about a lot. Can I eat my everything bagel while you're you're pontificating here for a moment? You want to literally eat an everything bagel? Is this a, is this a bit or is like a real thing? I'm gonna interrupt you. Why is it called an everything bagel? It like doesn't have my desk attached to it. There's not a car. It's got everything of reason on it. Oh, sorry, you know me. I got to interrupt you at least once during every show. I'm used to it. I mostly just ignore you at this point. (laughs) Why do we do this? Why? I don't even like you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I hope that's not true. (laughs) It it might be. I sharpen you like a knife. Or really, well, knife sharpener, really. Uh, No, so I have an OTP topic. So something I've been thinking about a lot is uh, when I look at a lot of the services at Bleacher Report. And I think about the idea, like I think I think it would kind of surprise people just sort of how little complicated stuff we do. We do a lot of really simple stuff. Like a lot of really, really simple stuff. And it kind of just like really works. And scaling is like really easy. And actually computers like are pretty fast at this point. When people talk about OTP and people talk about Elixir and like why you use Elixir, you know, I think they pitch them on a lot of these ideas of managing state and, you know, fault tolerance and distribution and hot code reloading. And like, we don't do any of that. Like, we don't need to do any of that. We have like some pretty straight ahead workflows. I've been thinking about this and it's come up more and more recently. And I just read a blog post today uh, from someone else who kind of adopted Elixir. And one of their key things was like, we didn't decide to go all in on OTP all over the place. And that actually kind of like super worked out for us. 
because it just sort of grafted into the rest of our, you know, microservice setup. And I actually think my sort of hot take opinion is like, I really, really wish more people presented Elixir in that light. Like, I really am pretty sick of hearing about hot code reloading, for instance. Like, I'm pretty over it. I'm pretty over people being like, eh, let's, um, let's, uh, let's just connect all of our nodes. That'll work. That won't cause any problems at all. Do you know any, anybody doing hot code reloading? People do this. People still do this in production. And it blows my mind. I mean, I mean, you know, Alon Z, like, good for you. I'm glad that you made that work. But most companies are not ready to make that work. And like solving for that use case, I think is is like to the detriment of Elixir and the Beam ecosystem writ large. Like I actually think it's a major, major detriment to adoption of these languages. And it's a thing, it's a hindrance because we present this stuff to companies to like, okay, so like the money's in enterprises. Like if we're just being honest, you know, the money is like getting big, is, is in the big companies, right? Big companies are big companies. Like they have, they're not adopting like a new technology for fun. Like they they have existing infrastructure. They have existing ways of working and they have existing uh, y- 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 tooling and they have existing like concepts they have. And you need to graft into that. And I'm here to tell you, you can do that with Elixir, right? Like no one's here debating if you could build like stateless microservices with Elixir and have that be like a really good pattern. But no one presents it that way. And people talk about a bunch of stuff that actually is getting in the way of adoption for those enterprises. Like people are getting, or starting to, people talk about hot code reloading. It's like, no, inter- like if you present that as a thing, then what ends up getting marketed is that you can do this stuff, but that's not a, that's not a winning strategy if what you want to do is get adopted in the enterprise. And we're going to talk in a second about like what that does, what these kind of concepts do to the actual like practitioners, like the developers who are coming into this. But like, let's just, let's just talk about just the marketing aspects of it for a second. It's like, that's bad marketing. You're, you're literally like, you're, you're picking a competition that can beat you. You don't market yourself against something that is, that is like, (laughs) seen as better than you. And like, whether it is or not, like whether it's true or not, that's how it's perceived. And I think what ends up happening is like, we talk about a lot of this stuff. We talk about distribution and hot code reloading. We talk about things that like most companies don't need. They don't need to be doing it. And what ends up happening is that seems like a barrier because it seems like you have to do all that stuff. It seems like you need to do all of that stuff. And when, and when in actuality you don't, you need to take an Elixir Docker container and shove your mix project in that and just run it with like mix run dash dash no halt and go to town. Like you, that, that gets you there. That gets you to the same place and just like windmill slam data into Redis or Postgres or whatever and do things in like a stateless fashion. You're still gonna be in a good place. And I don't feel like that gets like talked about enough. And, it, and, it, and because like people get hyped about these other use cases and it's like such so ingrained into the vm and we still are beholden to it we end up losing the market war because is it because we as engineers are too excited about possibilities that we don't need yet well i mean i i don't know i mean that's i probably you know somewhere down the line probably and it is really cool like the hot reloading and like uh, distribution is cool like i'm giving a talk about distribution i mean i realized i'm like killing you know uh, my ability to get people to come to my to my trainings you know by saying all this but like i do think this is actually true and we even say this in the training like you really consider whether you need to do this because because it's got a lot of overhead it's a so it's a ton of overhead 
A ton, a ton of overhead. And actually it turns out that like synchronous HTTP requests will take you a really, really long way, a really long way, you know, mm-hmm. just like, and this is why I always, you know, this is like such uh, such blasphemy in the Elixir community, but it's like, man, build a Phoenix app, take Phoenix. And even if you don't use the views or templates or whatever, if, you, if you're just using, like, if you're just serving Jason, like Phoenix is still great for that. Just serve Jason. And use Phoenix and you'll be up and running. You'll have an API rolling. Like, it'll be great. And it's going to, like, scale with you and all that stuff. You can interact in an ecosystem that's not just Elixir then, too. If you don't want to run, if you don't want to build releases, man, don't. Put your put your stuff in, like, compile it into a Docker container and mix run dash dash no halt that nonsense. Like, that'll do fine. Like, you don't need to build in a bunch of the other stuff, like, immediately. There are benefits to doing that down the line, but you do not have to at all. And so I just think that like we present a lot of this stuff as as like this is what we consider to be Elixir best practice. And I think it's actively detrimental to people because it it's detrimental to adoption. So that's just and that's just adoption. Forget like leading people, leading developers down some potentially very thorny paths. Like that's just adoption. Yeah, you sh- you should not start out day one trying to do hot code reloading in your in your Elixir app. Uh, you might be able to get away with it on something small, but as it starts to build up all of these things, sending messages back and forth and and having lots of OTP processes start to, they, they carry their own weight and their own drawbacks that you may not be ready for until you've worked with the language for a while. How do we sell adoption? And then how do we sell growth uh, after adoption? Like actually learning how to, how to do process, how to do hot code reloading when you get there and when you need it. Well, I just think, I think the narrative has to change. I think the narrative around why we do these things has to change. And the, the, the way I try to describe it a lot is like, we do this because fault tolerance. Like we do, Elixir is amazing because fault tolerance. Because, uh, you know, at scale, like everything's false. It's all false. It's all false all the way down. Uh, you're practically living in California where you've got so many faults. And like... <laughs> You're you're dealing with that wasn't near as funny as it it is to me right don't, now. Don't don't acknowledge the joke. Just keep going. So <laughs> you you end up with with needing to recover and needing to be stable throughout a lot of this. And this is sort of the I mean this is the stuff I'm really interested in right now. Like you just the idea isn't that like the beam is super super fast. The idea is that the beam can spawn all these processes and handle them all well. And it turns out if you've done that, then you can sort of satisfy the constraints of fault tolerance, which allows you to be more scalable. It's not that it's fast. It's that it's fault tolerant. Like, and you can just handle a lot of extra traffic as things are going down or things are, you know, having problems, uh, which is often actually what you need to do in order to make something scalable, scalable. I think that's a huge benefit. Pitching that as a huge, as, as a win is, is really, really, really important. I think where people start to like lead you down like some potentially really thorny paths, like for the developer, and this goes back to the marketing, right? Like number one, like a pragmatist is not going to look at all this stuff and be like, why do I want to do any of that? I can put it in a Docker container and throw it in, you know, my ECS or Kubernetes and like run it. Uh, and that'll just work. So, so like that's, that's, that's part one of marketing. Part two is like, I think we need to stop presenting a lot of the solutions as like, just put state inside your processes. I think that leads people to some pretty gnarly places because what ends up happening when you do that, if you put state that matters, if you put state that 
needs to be consistent inside of a process, now you're about to build a distributed system because what happens is you're gonna do that for a single node and then you're gonna be like, mm, we should really run two nodes at some point and you're gonna do that and now you have a distributed system. Right, and then you have three and you need leader election and... Right, you, well, that's the thing is like, well, well, now, <laughs> turns out what you need once you've done that is you start looking for solutions like, hmm, it'd be nice if we could connect all these nodes and hmm, it'd be nice if we could like hot upgrade all this stuff in place so that we don't have downtime. It's like those are those are solutions. I get why those solutions exist, and in in in, in real in reality, you really don't need the hot code reloading part of that. Uh, the distribution part is nice, but you know, like, are you prepared to start solving distributed systems problems when you need when you need to scale beyond a singular node? But I'm on the beam, and I can send messages between different computers pretty easily <laughs> and and so i should well here's the thing straw man <laughs> that's really hard it's really hard and uh, what i what i think i see happening for a lot of people is like a, a lot of people who've been around a while have just enough elixir experience or just enough experience running o otp applications that they do this kind of stuff but it doesn't get but it doesn't get you to the next part you don't have quite enough experience to realize you shouldn't do any of that to begin with Right. You know what I mean? And it's really hard because you do want to talk about these things. Like, I don't fault the people who, like, have written books, written blog posts to talk about process management and to talk about state management inside of Luxor. Those things are really important. The, the giant asterisk that I think all of the people who wrote all that stuff understand but doesn't always translate well is, like, there are situations where you may not want to do this. You may not want to have done this. And like, you really only want to do this for ephemeral state, for state that, you know, can go away, can be wrong, can disappear, can be rebuilt from a canonical set of state that is, that is right. And like, I think the people who are, you know, writing information, putting information out there, probably by and large, the majority of them understand that stuff, but it's really hard to convey that because it's totally experience driven. Like it's really hard to say that to people and have them get it. But that leads you to this place where all of a sudden, like, if you go deep into, you know, using processes for stuff, like really like using OTP, like all the time for everything that you're doing and building your application that way, man, you just signed yourself and your team up for a lot of hard problems. Yeah, you better like thinking more than typing. <laughs> if, yeah if you're if you're in that case because yeah the distributed systems problems whenever you start you know you got to deal with cap theorem and think about how you're gonna how you're gonna make sure that your front end to your app still looks same or close enough you got to deal with lots of trade-offs when you get into a distributed system too of i think you have to deal with trade-offs anyway but you have to deal with a lot more once you're distributed just because of the way data flows and then you're not just thinking about data and data changes now you got to think about Oh, I have this one process here that everybody's talking to. So I have these pinch points in my processes. Now now I need to have multiple of that process and manage that and manage things going up and down. And, and it just grows exponentially. Well, and I mean, so much. I mean, the exponential growth thing is so real. And I think what that is, I think at the core of it, what that is, is that, you know, so much of what we attempt to do in Elixir is to build stateless transformations. I think all of, I think if you've been doing this a while, like you've probably found the value in taking a map of things and mapping over it, reducing over it, pulling keys out and doing data transformation, right? That is super beneficial. That's a really good way to understand how the system works. And the reason is because it's deterministic. It is, you can put data in and get data back out at the other end. And that works exactly the same way every time you call it. 
because it's just data. It's just data going in, data coming out. The minute you add side effects to that, all bets are off. And it's very, very complicated to understand this stuff. Like the minute you start going to databases, start calling other services, start answering, you know, responding to requests, uh, start calling timers, start managing processes and their life cycles and supervision and crashes and all that kind of stuff. That's really, really hard. That's where all the complexity is. And you know, one of the key things is like doing more in your data transformation doesn't remove that complexity, but it does isolate it. it does isolate all that complexity to a single part, which is good. Often I think we strive to do more and more things deterministically because those are things that we can sort of wrap our heads around. And we can kind of pretend that the rest of the world will just get solved when we do that. Trying to do that on a distributed system, you throw, you take all the determinism that you might have had, the very few scraps of determinism you could have had, and you throw it out the window and you're like, nah, I'd prefer nothing ever work the way that I thought it would work and just go for it. And that's what building distributed systems is like. And half of building distributed systems that work correctly is making them deterministic, like figuring out how to understand them in a, determ in a deterministic way, having rules about how they work in a deterministic way. I mean, that's what CRDTs are for. The thing is, you don't even need to be on multiple machines or anything to be a distributed system when we throw in the actor pattern and, and OTP. Because when they're talking to each other, that's what, what I see a lot of people running into the pains is distributed system isn't on their mind at that point. Because it's, well, I, I just have one application. I'm starting it on one node. I'm not distributed. Well, yeah, you are. Right. Yes. Yes, you are. Because like, once you start having all these processes talk to each other, you've got race conditions. Like you've got like message ordering. You've got all kinds of problems and you have to start learning how to deal with all those kinds that all those kinds of problems in order to start to solve this stuff and that's it goes back to the, the thing it's like if you can push all your side effects out to the edges of your system that's going to be good there is there is value in that but by and large you can do all your nice state stateless stuff in the middle of like what your request that you're processing you know, you don't need to like dip into some other process or like do all of like the domain logic in some other place. Maybe that makes sense for your application, but by and large, you can kind of get away with it. Like you kind of don't have to, and you might be able to use something like a Redis or like, you know, uh, whatever, like Postgres. I don't know. Use some data store to do it uh, and just to put your state there. And now you're horizontally scalable. It's easier to deploy. It's easier to scale out things. It's easier to build stuff up to a degree, to a certain point. And then there comes a point where you want to start to rethink that. But doing that early, I don't know that that's going to benefit you anything. And I don't know that it's going to endear anyone to Elixir. Like, I don't think it's going to make Elixir a more palatable or marketable answer to these problems. We have to change the narrative around that stuff. And I think that starts with like changing the minds and opinions of people who write Elixir. People who are, who are like, who have just enough experience in Elixir, who maybe have been doing it for like a, a little bit of time, but haven't run it in production yet, haven't run it long in production yet, or haven't run it with scale. Like, you know, you're going to have those problems. And so we have to change how we, how we talk about that. Don't push for a distributed system until that distributed system is the only way to solve your problem. Yes, please. <laughs> that you can fathom. You know, don't 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 build your own RPC. Like these are the these are the rules that, that we these are the immutable rules of the world that we should live by. Don't build your own RPC. Don't build your own security. Don't build distributed systems unless you have to. Right? You have to you have to do all the three of those things for some job. Someone has to do them. That may not be you. Maybe think about it before you do it. 
<laughs> like, and there, and there is benefit to doing distributed stuff to bringing state into the services. Like that's why Ben and I talk about this in our trainings. Like it's, it's why we, we want to talk to people about it. Like there is reasons to do it. We emphasize really heavily that you still want to use a canonical store that's durable, that has some guarantees. You really want to do this for essentially two reasons. One is like taking more advantage of all your compute that you have. Or you want to do it because your latency needs are really, you know, like you have to have really, really low latency. And at that point, yeah, you might want to start bringing some stuff and putting it in nets and see what, see how that works for you. Otherwise, it's like, I don't know, man, sync HTTP 1.1 requests. Like that'll take you a really, really long way. Yeah. If, if the only thing you're doing is some kind of website, you probably don't need to even worry about these really low latencies quite frequently where i've run in the only time that i've run into actually needing low latency stuff was on hardware where i had to respond to a piece of hardware in a certain number of milliseconds or it assumed it didn't get any data and started over but most most web stuff that you're working with you're not going to have that kind of problem when you start putting in processes and you know we, we do talk about failover and restarting a lot and i really do think that if you read fred's article on um the zen of erlang that failing and restarting is really really what we're after a lot of times in in using otp at all at least in in my experience but as soon as you start doing that and you're dealing with that failover what are some of the the things that you think people need to think of that they don't normally are not used to thinking about i've got i've got one i can start with one just to get the juices flowing thundering herds Right. So I have a bunch of processes. Maybe they all die at once and they're all starting up. And let's say that they're trying to make database connections everywhere. Uh, and they're all, so you have, you know, 40 things starting up at the same time, all trying to talk to the same database, make the same connection, and they have timeouts on them. So they can't make the connection because there's too many people going after it. So they all shut down and restart again. All shut down, restart again. Or they're just talking to other processes too. Like it doesn't have to be talking to connection if you just, pile a bunch of stuff onto another process as soon as they'll start up it can be really bad yeah that's a that's a major problem i think if you are managing even ephemeral state uh, one of the things that you really have to be careful of is what kind of guarantees you want to give about that process like starting up and about how and about its consistency so the thing i see that's happened a couple times is if you're if you're doing your state management and like you're doing some sort of like version of event sourcing or something like that, like taking in different uh, messages into your process that then build up some state over time. And then you're periodically like writing that into some sort of canonical store. That's a really dangerous pattern because often the reason you crash is because you get into a bad state. That's like predominantly the reason that, that processes crash is they get into some sort of bad state. And the danger is if you're managing the actual state, the canonical state that's going to a database and you're rebuilding it like based on these messages. If you're putting your state from the process into the database and that state gets bad and you crash the process, depending on when you've stored it, you can cause that process to essentially be poisoned and die forever. So for instance, if you're updating the state, writing it, and then like moving on to the loop, you don't realize that it's broken until the next time you go through the loop. So if I'm like, if I do a handle event call or handle cast or whatever, and I update state, flush it to the database, and then wait for my next message. The next time I get a message is the, is the point in time when the corrupted state becomes a problem. That's when I blow up because it's not, you don't notice it until the next time that process receives a message call. What ends up happening is that 
message call will kill the process. And at that point, the process might come back up, refresh itself from the database, at which point it will wait until it has another message and then dies again. And then so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. And just now you're poisoned. So that's that's a main thing. That's something I would look out for. Uh, doing validations before they go to the database, you know, you, you know, like figuring out the right ways to manage that kind of state uh, stuff is super, super important. Even if it is ephemeral and you're putting it in ETS or whatever it is. Message ordering. Yeah, message ordering is a real problem. Because uh, your messages aren't going to come in in the order that you think that they are. Yeah, necessarily. never. Yeah. Never. <laughs> I see that a lot, like things crashing over and over just because you expect messages to come in from some outside actor in a specific order and they didn't and then you restart and it you're doing casts so you don't get much feedback and then you're doing it again and never actually giving it that restart order and so you got to start thinking of having processes that are made just to monitor processes and tell other ones hey this one died or like connecting them more tightly than they were and yeah well a lot of the supervision stuff is tricky as we've talked about before you know supervisors are great for bringing your state your system up into a hopefully stable system right and doing some amount of uh, providing those kinds of guarantees providing some sort of guarantees about the stability of your system but like you know they're not going to do exponential back off for you they're not going to do retry logic you know, they're not going to do the kinds of stuff that you might need to do if you want to, you know, send a request at most three times to a downstream web service and you want it to back off and do jitter and, ex- and all this kind of stuff. So you need to look at, you need to figure out other ways to sort of set that stuff up as well. I, I got notified that I'm supposed to teach math, so I'm going to have to get out of here. There's one thing about distributed systems that in Elixir or Erlang that I think a lot of people from the marketing material only don't think about and that's race conditions they're like oh it makes i don't have to worry about threading and and think about that no it just makes i mean you're still threading in one way or another it just makes it simpler to think about and the biggest uh example that i give people and i may have even said it on here before is like a counter if you have a process that's a simple counter you need to tell it to increment the number where i've seen a lot of times where people get the number update the number and then put it back right yeah yeah same problem they had in java (laughs) right so if you're updating the number you have to make sure the process that owns it is the one that's updating any any state it doesn't have to be a number if a process owns some state that process must be the one to update that state and to update that state doesn't mean you give it new state and it updates its it replaces its state it needs to do all the updating of the state if you don't want to deal with race conditions yeah, those are still possible depending on how you write your system. And they can they come in in message ordering too, so it goes back mm-hmm. to that. And don't do select receive to try to fix that. Leave that to somebody else. Oh, come on. <laughs> All right. Everything we've have we given the people what they want? I don't know what they want. I just keep talking to you because I like it. <laughs> I sharpen you like a knife sharpener. You sharpen me like a knife sharpener. That's right. And well, we missed Anna today. She she had some busy stuff at work. But uh, just shout out to Anna because it's been a while since we've all gotten together and talked. We've had a busy few weeks where we haven't been able to get together. So I appreciate you guys. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope the people got what they want. And yeah. if they did, I think we've given them enough content. I mean, this is called content. Well, if they if they didn't get what they want, come back come back for the next episode and see if you get what you want. Then <laughs> let's wrap us up. Yep. Go teach yep. math. All right. All right. Thanks, brother. All right. Later, man. Have a wonderful day.